Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about impeachment, patriots must resist. We have an interview today about socialism in Venezuela with Venezuelans, I'll introduce in a moment. Rosemary Collier, shocked, I tell you, about the FBI's conduct, and can Attorney, Jar- excuse me, Attorney General Barr handle his job? And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. This is a very solemn day in America. As we speak, the U.S. House is holding hearings and allowing the uh, opposition party, the Democrats, to ramble on and on about President Trump and the impeachment articles. We expect to vote shortly later today uh, with the majority, at least of the House, voting in favor of impeachment of the president. It's a very, very serious day. I'll talk about it later in the show also. But I want to remind people of a few basic facts about this impeachment and what it means for America. Number one, this is the first impeachment in American history where there is no crime charged. There is is completely partisan. There's not one member of the president's party supporting it. We have literally no crime alleged. We had advocacy for this impeachment prior to the president being sworn in before any of the events that allegedly are the basis of the impeachment even occurred. We have hearings led by Adam Schiff, who secretly met with the alleged whistleblower behind the scenes and helped kick off the whole event, intricately involved in this impeachment effort. And we have the um, we have these uh, driven by the outcome of this impeachment so far has been improving the president's impeachment numbers, uh, approval numbers, getting around to the point that this impeachment is 100 percent a political partisan attack. The two articles of impeachment, to keep this in mind, we'll talk about more about this later in the show, but the two articles of impeachment, the first is abuse of power. President Trump, is accused of meeting the standard for impeachment in the Constitution for doing what presidential frontrunner Democrat contender Joe Biden did on live camera. What he bragged about doing, and that is what, if President Trump had done what Biden did, you know, he'd at least they'd be equal. President Trump hasn't done that. Joe Biden did do it, but somehow, this abuse of power impeachment article against President Trump is viewed as sufficient despite that the front-running Democrat contender for president actually did exactly this, threatened Ukraine with withholding a billion dollars in aid unless they would fire the prosecutor who was getting after Biden's son. So the first article is a complete sham, a ridiculous sham, especially when one dives and understands, which we'll get to later in the show, what President Trump was asking about in the Ukraine was actual, profound, ongoing corruption involving the Bidens, involving Burisma, involving individuals in the Ukraine, involving money laundering, actual crimes that the president was suggesting be investigated. 
That's the first article. Second article, even flimsier, is Congress is saying, essentially, they're finding an article of impeachment over obstruction of Congress, meaning they are arguing that Congress is not equal, is not exactly, not really one equal branch among three co-equal branches, but actually Congress runs the country. They get to decide whether or not President Trump can assert executive privilege. The executive privilege assertions by the uh, Trump administration are pending now in federal court. And what the left is arguing in this country is the president doesn't actually have the right to assert executive privilege over conversations and documents intimately related to his performance of his job as president. Congress is saying they're above the presidency, they're above the executive branch, they decide what President Trump must produce to them, and he has no right to assert executive privilege. Case is still pending in court, may still go on after the Senate takes up this issue. But the arrogance of this is, number one, there really is a long-term, several decades long, recognized by the federal court, genuine executive privilege. Just today, or yesterday, I guess, the Department of Justice issued a report, issued a number of documents confirming, verifying that the Office of Legal Counsel inside the Department of Justice has made clear, has spelled out that the executive privilege exists, that a president is entitled to protect his conversations with his associates, with his high-level affiliates, and, the, and some of the documents they produce, because otherwise you can't function as a president you can't function as the leader of our country if everything you say and do as you discuss various policy options and various issues with your high-ranking associates and colleagues can be scrutinized by another branch of government. You can't do your job. So the two articles of impeachment are truly a complete sham. This is not a Republican versus Democrat issue. This is not a conservative versus liberal issue. This is an issue of whether or not in our country we're going to take seriously the duty, the obligation of the members of Congress to actually follow the Constitution and actually apply the provisions permitting them to bring articles of impeachment in a lawful, rational, sane manner. And I got to tell you, folks, in closing out the first five today, I will say I think that the um, country has greatly benefited at this time by the existence of social media and of Twitter. Now I know some people hate Twitter. One of the people, things people say is shouldn't have Twitter, people should stop using it, and then the president shouldn't use it. I think what the Democrats are not calculating is how many millions and millions and millions of Americans are actually deeply tuned in to what the American left is up to in this attack on President Trump. It is simply a conquering, uh, is an attempt to conquer the presidency, it is an attempt to destroy the presidency, it is an utter rebuke of the Constitution. And because social media exists, because people now gather their news from online web sources, now you have to find the quality ones, the substantive ones, the legitimate ones, but people gather their news there they find out things by reading online, going right to source documents themselves. I think the Democrats are not calculating that millions and millions of Americans can see this impeachment for the sham 
effort it is for the simply use of the raw political power of happening to hold the majority of seats in the U.S. House, the radical left in this country is trying to take down a president who has done, as he once he's been in office, exactly what he promised he would do. The impeachment has nothing whatsoever to do with the Ukraines. It has nothing to do with the country of Ukraine, has nothing to do with the conversation between Trump and Zelensky in July of this year. The impeachment is 100% about the leftist determination to seize power. They're, the fact that they're livid that their designated successor, Hillary Clinton, didn't win, and they're livid that Donald Trump President Trump is actually pursuing the drain the swamp agenda he promised to the American people. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. We have two guests joining us. I want to tell you, before I bring them on, I'm, first of all, I'm so excited to have them on. I've been reading about these people, um, and I finally got a way to get a hold of them. And I'm going to have them join us in just a very short amount of time. But we have, um, we have, uh, uh, Jorge Galicia and Andres Gullarte, and I apologize if I'm not saying those names correctly, but the two gentlemen joining us are actually here in America, ha but have, were raised in Venezuela, and they are here in America going around the country trying to help Americans understand how socialism destroyed their precious home country. Before I bring them on, I'm going to ask Matt, the completely wonderful producer, to play a clip I sent to him. This is just a little tease of these two people joining us. I want you to listen to this clip, and then we are just greatly honored to have both of them on video joining us in just a moment. But Matt, if we can play that clip first, please. It is really hard for people to believe that a country with so much potential could collapse so completely. Breaking news in our world lead, Venezuela may be on the brink of no return right now. This is what it's come to in Venezuela, emergency surgery by flashlight. A massive shortage of food and aid in the country is leaving thousands of Venezuelans literally fighting for their lives. Venezuela was once one of the richest countries in the world. Venezuela's government today ordered schools and businesses closed. Tomorrow as a nationwide power failure continues. Food and gasoline in Venezuela are running out. People say that what happened in Venezuela could never happen here in America. But I was there. I am an eyewitness. And I want to tell you, think again. Hundreds of Venezuelans are fleeing the country. I was forced to leave my life, my family and my country behind. Now, I want to tell the story. Okay, is that not just riveting? I mean, just by that, you, I hope you're excited as I am to welcome to the show Jorge Galicia and Andres Guillarte. And I believe we have them both on video. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, Debbie. Thank you for having us. Welcome to the show. Now, you know what? We talked ahead of time. I sent a list of questions, and you may have noticed from here in my first five that I can talk pretty fast, but I actually want to be sure that most of what we do is hear from you. And, and I'll just start. I'm going to go back and forth uh, and uh, no particular order. I think I'll start with Jorge just to ask you this. So you're here in America talking about the dangers of socialism, what happened in Venezuela. Can you start with just a very quick bio of yourself, a biography of yourself, and then what, how did socialism hurt you in Venezuela? Well, uh, I, I was a political activist in Venezuela. I graduated from law school. I arrived here to America a year ago, and I love being here, but this was never my plan. The reason I'm here is because I'm escaping a regime, a socialist regime that completely destroyed uh, my whole country. And now I have to escape to protect <laughs> myself, to protect my life, my integrity. And 
that that's how socialism basically ruined my whole life. It's, um, and, you know, I get really depressed when I get here and I start listening to people it's talking good good stuff about socialism. I just cannot believe it because I just arrived from a socialist place and they don't have any clue of how it is to be here. So I said, I, America need a help and I'm willing to take action because I cannot, I can, I, I don't want to go through the same situation all, all, all over again now that I'm here and I have a new home. God bless you for that spirit of wanting to speak up and, and help out. So Andres, tell us a little bio about yourself and, and when and why you came to America and you know what socialism, how did it really impact you in your life in Venezuela? Well, yes, I mean, I arrived here in January, January of this year. Uh, back in Venezuela, I graduated from the Central University of Venezuela with a bachelor's degree in international relations. I'm those four years in the university, I was involved in the engaged in the student movement, you know, fighting against the regime in the streets and inside the campus. So I used to be like Jorge too, a political activist back in Venezuela. So I received an opportunity to be an intern with the Cato Institute. That's why I arrived here in January. And since I've been here in the US, we are voting the same topic, trying to fight back against the topic of socialism, specifically in the universities. That's why our targeting the ca in this project is going to university campus, because that's where usually you see a lot of young people trying to praise the socialist policies that destroy our country. It is truly as remarkable for many, many Americans, uh, you know, those of us who kind of been students of political science, students of the, uh, of just kind of the world and the history of the world, to think that we're actually having a serious discussion in America in 2019 about whether socialism would be a good idea. So uh, let me go back to um, Jorge. Let me ask you this about Venezuela. You talked a little bit about when in Venezuela the socialists came to power when they ran when they took power in your country what kinds of things were they promising the citizens of venezuela in order to win so this is obviously hugo chavez what kind of things was he promising the socialist promise uh if you would just elect them to power well of course hugo chavez arrived to power promising you know free what well, they always promise free health care free college tuition free you know free houses for everybody uh, basically paradise in, 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 in the earth, right? And it was really tempting for society to vote for this because, well, people want the free stuff. And when you don't really understand the economics behind all, of how, I mean, if you don't understand how the system works, it is really actually, it is really simple to, to be, to, to buy these ideas, right? Because who, who in the world doesn't want, don't, do not want uh, free stuff, right? But listen, the, the consequences of applying these uh, policies well, you just have to read some of the news to find out what's going on in Venezuela for, you know, subsidizing almost everything. And it, it was never free for us. It cost us, uh, it, it costed us billions of dollars and ultimately our own freedom and democracy. And now here we are, people like me and Andres, who we didn't even vote ever for, for, for this regime, either because we didn't have the age to vote or, be, or because we, were, we never believed it anyhow. But now the, the young people like me are the ones paying consequences of this uh, of this madness you know so it's re actually really sad what's going on in Venezuela right now oh it's excruciating and we've oh. talked on this show about how people were eating their own because of poverty and lack and not sufficient food eating their own pets eating zoo animals they have pictures of grocery stores with nothing on the shelves 
And so let me uh, go back now to Andres. So you uh, grew up in, in Venezuela. So did you, can you say in your lifetime that you kind of watched the decline uh, happening in Venezuela under socialism or were you maybe too young to appreciate what was happening? No, of course, I'm only 25 years old. I was born in 1994. And since I have, I can remember Chavez was, all, was always a main political figure in our life in Venezuela because what this kind of socialists do is that they become like a, a really high public figure. Chavez used to have a, a TV show every single morning. So there is no one in Venezuela that can say that Chavez wasn't involved in their regular lives. And yes, I mean, in Venezuela, as I, as I grew up, part uh, those family reunions are starting to collapse. A lot of families had to leave the country. We reached a moment a few, a few months ago when I was in Venezuela that eating three times a day was impossible. So you have to, you know, uh, gather food as you can and be able to survive as long as, as, as the money, uh, that the money ran, doesn't run out. And like a lot of families live right now in Venezuela because all these relatives that leave the country, they send money overseas. And that's how you survive in Venezuela. Not even by working in the, in the, in Venezuela, you have enough money to actually, you know, buy well, your basic needs. So yes, I, I saw the decline, not only my family, but all the people I knew. Okay. So, you know, the watching the decline and the, and the uh, poverty growing and lack growing, wasn't there growing opposition? I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going back and forth. So Jorge, so wasn't there growing opposition during Chavez and then on to Maduro's time, growing opposition to the socialists, I mean, to the idea of socialism? And if there was that kind of opposition, you know, do, did people have a way to get out of this? Did they have a path out of socialism once they saw it wasn't working? Well, sadly, the political opposition in Venezuela was um, never really, you know, really accurate when it comes to making opposition because, you know, when when the problem is that Hugo Chavez, he, he had a big uh, oil revenue when he was in power, right? So he was able to actually give a lot of free stuff because he had a lot of money uh, coming from this uh, huge revenue of, of the oil market, right? So the what the opposition did was actually, when in order to compete against him, what they were saying, listen, people, if you vote for us, uh, we are actually going to give you more than whatever <laughs> Hugo Chavez is giving you right now. <laughs> so that was the debate. There was not really, a, really a, a real debate in Venezuela when you know, no, just few voices. On, I think only Maria Corina Machado, the leader of my political party, she was the only one offering, you know, free markets and deregulation and uh, balancing the budget as a way to actually um, solve all of the Venezuelans' problems. She was the only one, and she wasn't really popular back when, at, at those early years, right? But yeah, for a lot of people, they they didn't see any solution coming, so they, you know, they decided to just to leave uh, in the early years, and well, right now, they don't see a solution at all, so we're seeing how millions and millions are, are just living, because they, you know, they walk the whole Latin American continent, they walk no, not even bus ticket or, of course, not an air, airplane ticket because they cannot afford it. So they, they go by walking this huge uh, uh, amount of, of earth, to, to, of land, only to, to, to reach uh, better places and to, to be able to have some kind of dignity of life. But that's how it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. I want to follow up, Jorge. There's one point you're making about um, how fighting back against socialism is very challenging to political figures 
who actually believe in free markets, who believe in the idea of the individual, the wealth, the, the, uh, the worthiness of the individual, the right of self-reliance, the success of a, of a society based on self-reliance and all that. It's hard to argue politically in a climate when one party is promising everything will be free, just vote for us, and people who don't know that socialism kills and don't know that you run out of other people's money it's very hard for the conservative to make that free market argument. I mean, is that accurate? That was what was happening? Yeah, it is absolutely hard. I mean, and it is harder when you see that. I mean, for example, I kind of understand what was going on with the opposition in Venezuela, because I mean, if you when when socialism was uh, in place in Venezuela and when Hugo Chavez was this big amount of money and he was actually giving free stuff, people was like, hey, well, this might be working. I'm receiving my, my fair share, right? And how, how do you say to people, listen, yeah, you're might be receiving something, but what you're not seeing is are the consequences of the future. I mean, it requires a, a higher level of, 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 of thinking and a higher economic uh, understanding of the situation. But I mean, that's why I, I really appreciate that organizations like the Fund for American Studies are actually trying to educate uh, people from really young ages so they can understand how economic works works and because this is important once you understand that nothing is free that all, all everything actually have a, a price there is no free lunch free meal when you understand that and then you will start to under, to realize why socialism in it doesn't matter whether whether it's so, uh, democratic or authoritarian like the one we have in venezuela it, it is always doomed to fail because there is no free lunch to summarize a famous saying, yes, there is no free lunch. Andreas, I want to go back to you now. So, you know, it's so interesting. I think that people try to paint socialism as a everything will be happy. One of them use the term paradise. Everything will be free and we'll all be happy and everything will be great. But, and I want to ask if you observe this in Venezuela, but once you have a government that's promising free things and therefore as you're both saying wealthy people leave people who can leave uh they get out of the country the government isn't really able to provide what they promised they could provide so do you do you see a parallel between the growing um uh i don't want to say necessarily straight from socialism to violence but doesn't the socialist system ultimately inspire the government to become more and more controlling, authoritarian, eventually violent, to keep everything in place? Sure. I mean, one of the, like Corey was saying, one of the biggest troubles against these kind of politicians that promise free stuff is that it hears wonderful. But the main question always has to be who pays for it. In the beginning, a lot of people can start receiving this free stuff. But in the long run, the government doesn't have the same amount of money to keep these promises. Because how do you get the money? Usually governments through taxes and they have to engage more and more taxes and companies that they, they don't want to go to a country where their investment is going to be threatened by a government with a lot of taxes. So in Venezuela, you could see that when the money is starting to run out, Chavez is starting to confiscate it, private businesses because he needed money. And in the long run, those businesses that he confiscated, they, they were destroyed. They were no longer being productive. So in the long run, the, the government start getting money from anywhere it can. And when the money runs out and they don't have the same amount to provide the free stuff, well, people are starting to get angry. And since they don't want to lose power, they have to recruit weapons, you know, to maintain that order. That's what happened in Venezuela. And that's, that usually happens in every single country where socialism is enacted. 
That was a great song. Certainly. Uh, and people have to understand about Venezuela is that, well, hardcore socialism, of course, started in 1999 when we elected, when Hugo Chavez arrived to power. But before of that, what we saw in Venezuela was a constant growing of the welfare state. Even it was not hardcore socialism, private property was uh, kind of respected in Venezuela before Hugo Chavez. And we had some cow rule of law and we had democracy. But, and this is a parallel I see uh, when you compare both countries, Venezuela and the United States, is that since the 70s, at least, Venezuela didn't stop, uh, you know, growing its uh, national debt. It was like a, like crazy. All of the, gov the democratic governments were trying really hard to give, uh, you know, some cow of welfare state, and it got bigger, it got bigger, to the point where uh, it was no longer sustainable. And when people, when the politi some part of the elite realized that this welfare state model was no longer sustainable for Venezuela, they decided to make reforms, trying to, you know, cut somehow the budget to make it to, to balance it and, and and so on. Then when that happened, then, you know, the Venezuelans didn't like what they were seeing because they were already used to the kind of welfare stuff, uh, welfare state, and. Uh, well, they reject they rejected the the the, the reforms, and um, it, it was not it was politically unlikely for the, for these reforms to go through. And then they demanded Hugo Chavez to be in power because he, well, they saw in his promises the way to keep the, this uh, uh, all of this free free stuff, right? So that you, people. Americans should be really careful about the way they control their debt because it's getting higher and higher every year and I don't see any way to fix it. <laughs> that is a brilliant point, the combination of the right. debt and and of the growth of the welfare state. You want, Jorge, you want to say something? Or no, I mean, do one of you just say something? No, yeah, I mean, yeah, oh, uh, because if you don't control, if you as American don't con do not control the debt, you will see yourself ending up in a situation really similar to Venezuela, or maybe not that bad, but you could end up end up like Greece or like uh, France right now, who is having a lot of political uh, uh, disturbance for not controlling the debt. Yep, Andres, you were going to chime in, I think. Yeah, I mean the, the main problem is is that social socialism great gives a lot of power to government, and when you give this amount of power to politicians that they control the budget, they control the programs, the social programs, they control all of this. They the main topic is to not allow the government to grow, grow that bigger. And the U.S. has that in the Constitution. The, 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 the idea of the founding fathers in the U.S. was to make the government as small as to fit the Constitution. And that's the role model that should be a fall in the whole world. And what happened in Venezuela, what happened in Greece, what probably will happen also in Argentina and in other countries in South America, yep. is that they are going to enact more policies to give more control to the government. And when that happens, everything just starts going south. I love that point. Okay, so you both of you are going around speaking on college campuses, trying to help young people understand that what happened in Venezuela, I mean, I do think people here look at, we, we cover it in this show, everyone talks about it. Venezuela is collapsing and it's, it's a horrific and, and tragic and horrible thing. But people think it couldn't happen here. They think, yeah, well, that's Venezuela. Somehow they didn't do socialism right. If they hadn't, if they'd done it right, they wouldn't be so stuck. So I want to ask you, when you talk to American students around the country, do you 
do you get a sense that they are, let me say it the other way, is it hard to convince young people in America who believe in socialism that America could really follow Venezuela's path? And I guess I'll, I'm going back and forth. I'll go, go back to Jorge, I guess. Go ahead. Well, I, I really see. I really think that there is a lot of uh, confusion, especially because people, young people, I don't think they really understand uh, what socialism is about. I mean, they say, yeah, I am a socialist, but I also believe in, you know, in private property because... <laughs> And I am a socialist because I am a, uh, I'm generous to people and I want, I mean, they don't see that, I mean, being generous is not being socialist. I am a generous person and I am, I, I would love to see society, uh, you know, a more generous society who is willing to share with one another. But that's, as long as, as it is in a voluntary basis, that is okay. But the problem is when you put a gun, you point a gun at, to each other trying to make, to, you know, to, to get your fair share of what this what it, what what, it, what belongs to you that's the problem and one when, when I, I really believe that when you start explaining what socialism is you know well they they actually saying well this is not this might not be a good idea of course there are a lot of radicalized people that will never change their minds but people when when they when they hear the talk I, I, I really believe that they start to realize how how big of a problem this is I, I'm so glad to hear that I, I wish you could speak to every American maybe below the age of 30. Just, just make them listen to your story. But I'll go back to you, Andres. So where we are in this country right now, we have elections coming up next year. We have uh, certainly on, on the left in this country, we have at least one very openly avowed socialist running. And we have people on the left, even though they don't, even though they would say they're not socialists, the policies they're proposing are very similar to what both of you were talking about, the socialist argued for back when you started down this, you know, falling off the cliff to socialism back at the time of uh, Chavez and then Maduro. So if you could talk to Democrat Socialists of America, Andres, and give them three points, what do they have to understand about socialism? What do you want them to understand? Well, first of all, we need to take a look at these, all these candidates from the left. When they speak about socialist policies, they never refer to Venezuela. They say they were going to make a Scandinavian model. And that's one of the key factors that we encounter in campuses. A lot of people that they say, no one is speaking about going the path of Venezuela. We want to go to the path of Norway, of Sweden, and these kind of countries. And the thing is that Bernie and all these candidates, when they speak of their policies and they say it's a social democracy like Scandinavian, behind those policies, I, I only see Chavez as, as he was in 1999. Because you, you cannot think about Venezuela right now, because right now we are in like, like in the last step of the chaotic uh, system. You need to think about how was Chavez in 1999. And I, when I see these candidates, I have flashback of how was Chavez in those years. So more to speaking about these candidates, that while we speak to young students is to read more, read more about history. Because right now we live in a society where everything's in social media. And you have all these influencers saying that we need to support these kind of policies from these candidates, and they forget the examples of Venezuela, the examples of Cuba, the, the examples in Western Europe. And what you're saying a, a few months ago, a lot, in Venezuela we used to say that we're not going to be like Cuba, and we end up being wow. worse than Cuba. So when I hear someone saying in, in the U.S., we're not going to be like Venezuela, we're not going to be like Cuba, don't pay attention to that, because you never know what is going to happen once a socialist reaches to power. And that was happening in Venezuela. You cannot be even being worse than, the, than Venezuela. I think that the key factor in the US is to, like Horace said, pay attention to the debt. 
because that is going to be the major problem in the upcoming years. And if you to that depth, you sum more social programs and more things that the government is going to pay, it's going to be a huge problem that is going to get out of hands in the future. Brilliant point. They're, they're all brilliant points. You know what? Um, I said in my email, we emailed earlier, and I, I could we could probably talk for about two hours because I think this is such an, I mean, first of all, you're so articulate, both of you, and you're speaking from your heart and from your personal life experience. And I want to commend your generosity, really taking your lives. You've gotten to America and you could just be deciding, hey, I finally got to America. Yay, I'm going to join the free market system. I'm going to, you know, get a job and sit down and make money and do whatever I want to do. But you're actually doing the work of it is the work of like the, the pioneers who to reawaken the American uh, understanding of the greatness of freedom and the greatness of free markets and and to help people see where we could be headed so I commend both of you for your generosity it's just truly amazing I guess I should go back and Jorge we're almost out of time Jorge what would you like the takeaways you want the Democrat Socials of America to get from you well once again pay attention to the debt if you keep offering free stuff, ask yourself, how are you going to pay it? Right now, the levels of debts are tremendously high, and we just we should be looking for ways to get that that let those levels down, not to keep offering things to get to get it up. Because if we don't do that, the job, well, I mean, you you're gonna regret it. I mean, <laughs> I uh, uh, I'm suffering the consequences that other people did uh, in the past. And um, that's really unfortunate, but I'm willing to give the fight here. I'm not, um, you know, I don't want to go through the same uh, chaotic situation like, all over again. And I think as a Venezuelan, that's uh, the best gift that we, now that we are all over the world spread because of this massive migration that we are about to, we are uh, about to, serve, to, to pass the Syrian migratory crisis and we are about to become the biggest migratory crisis around the world. Wait, wait, so, the people I from think, Venezuela are going to exceed the number of Syrians who've left because of yes, this? Yes. I you, did not know that. Yes, you hear it right. We are, wow. If we keep the tendency in some, in, I think in two or three months, uh, according to uh, uh, an article I just read, we are about to, to pass the, the Syrians and we don't even we don't have uh, any major conflict or any war going on right now in Venezuela just socialism so in that sense maybe I think socialism it could be even worse <laughs> than, yeah. a, than, a, than the horrible political war but yeah that's uh that's my remark. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, you know, uh, first of all, for our listeners, you can find both these gentlemen, read more about them, and actually reach out to uh, the Fund for American Studies to invite them to speak at your campus. Honestly, I think you should be speaking at Democrat clubs around the country, but anyway, or Republican clubs, but you can go to TFAS, <laughs> TFAS, the Fund for American Studies.org, and you can read about these young gentlemen. You can invite them to speak at your campus. And I love that both of you, I really want to tie, I, I love all the points you made. They kind of, they frankly reinforce things I say on my show all the time. But one being the growth of the welfare state is not about kindness, it's about generating and, and increasing dependency. Once you have people depend on the government, they always think more can come, that there's no reason to limit it, that the failure to have bigger and bigger programs is simply due to meanness or something. And I'm glad you both were making the point in various ways that once you agree the government's in charge of supplying what you need, the growth in power in the government is always going to end up 
causing the society become more limited, more fearful of the government. The government expands its power. It must force its will on the people. So it isn't just an economic system. It ultimately creates a very uh, overbearing government-controlled society to try to keep that system in place. So Jorge, Andres, I could honestly could talk to you for two hours at least. But thank you both for joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you, Thank you, baby. Okay, love, my goodness, what a great interview. Okay, folks, I really urge you to read their stories. Um, they, they're amazing young men, and they, I'm going to try to bring them to a few campuses. I have in mind. I want to hit two other quick stories today before we wrap up. Um, you know, we talked at the f first five today about the impeachment. I want to just talk about, um, you know, the impeachment, as you well know, I believe, the impeachment is allegedly all about, okay, it has, in, in reality, nothing to do with the phone call between Trump and Zelensky in the Ukraine. Nothing at all. It is a pure political coup. And in fact, people are talking more more about don't just call it a coup. It's going to evolve into a civil war. I don't want that. And I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying that's inevitable. But I don't think the American people are going to take this sitting down. They're not going to. One little piece of it going back again to the Mueller investigation and the Russia-Trump collusion hoax that after two and a half years and all the money, millions of dollars spent, no collusion found between Trump and the Russians. One thing that I want to point out is happening right now is that, you know, the Russia collusion hoax involved in part the dossier paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign and then later by the Democrat Party, the dossier used to get the FISA court, the, uh, to issue the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, to issue warrants permitting the FBI to spy on political enemies. This is all the, the Obama administration weaponizing the federal government against their opponents. So in the case of the FISA court, went back in February of 2018. So nearly, we're coming up in two years ago, Devin Nunes, then the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, sent a report to Rosemary Collier, who was the presiding judge, the presiding judge of the FISA court. And understanding how unique an animal this FISA court is, it was only created in 1978. It has 11 judges. The judges are chosen by the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice. It's a very high, you know, very high status, very high stakes court because it's permitting the FBI to spy on American citizens. So FISA court, you know, was told by Nunes in February of 2018 that there had been grotesque abuses. Nunes laid out for Rosemary Collier, the chief judge, all that the FBI had done. And Rosemary Collier's answer in February 2018 was to do nothing. Nothing. She didn't care didn't care or didn't believe it or didn't want to believe it, would not act. Only now, because everything that Devin Nunes said in that report in February 2018 was then confirmed by the Inspector General's report. You know, we just had that come out, the IG report, the Inspector General for the DOJ, you know, laid out what he found and the DOJ, the Inspector General's report, confirmed everything Nunes said. All of a sudden, Rosemary Collier found her voice. Rosemary Collier sent a blistering, allegedly blistering order to the FBI saying, you know, she's outraged, shocked, I tell you. That's why I called it shocked, I tell you. She can't be shocked. She knew. She was told. But she's now, the public can see, 
the entire court can see the Supreme Court Justice, the Supreme Court, the uh, Chief Judge who appointed her, Chief Justice, appointed her, all can see that everything that FISA court did was compromised by the FBI and hidden by the Democrats in the House, hidden by the Democrats across the board, the federal level, trying to pretend it nothing like that ever happened. The FISA court did not have just one erroneous ruling with a tiny little bit of a misstatement. They got played, or even worse, they knew they were being played. We don't know what it is, but Rosemary Collier issued this blistering letter saying, you know, she wants them, she wants the FBI to show how they'll improve their procedures in the future. That's not the problem, improving their procedures in the future. The problem is what accountability, if any, is there going to be for their past conduct? Devin Nunes is calling for, for now, ending the FISA court. And you know, it only got started in 1978. It's not like, I'm sorry, yeah, 1978. It's not like it has to exist, and given their apparent inability to act in accordance with our Constitution, act in accordance with basic justice, I think it's a great idea. Get rid of that court for a while, and Rosemary Collier has a lot more explaining to do, and this, this whole blistering order she issued is a lot like, you know, that shocked I tell you line, if you don't know what that's from, that's from Casablanca when the, uh, you know, the gambling, he, the, the uh, chief, whatever his, his title was, the police officer there in Casablanca closes down Rick's place because he discovers gambling is happening there and he's been doing gambling all along. He's been gambling there himself, but he says, shock, they tell you to find. Yeah, Rosemary Collier is not shocked. She knew all along. She just either didn't believe it because she had all the information almost two years ago. Didn't believe it or didn't care. Final thing I want to hit today very briefly and again on this extremely, extremely important day in American history. This is a purely partisan impeachment of a president for doing absolutely nothing wrong. Again, for doing what Joe Biden has admitted on open tape he did do, and the Democrats failed to prove that President Trump did do, and, and which was to try to get to the bottom what President Trump did, the bottom of what was happening in the Ukraine with Burisma, with Hunter Biden, with Ukrainian corruption, the money laundering, uh, operation that appears to have been ongoing, that Giuliani now, Rudy Giuliani is saying he can show is ongoing. That's what they're going to impeach Trump for. And the second one, really, the second one, basically the Democrats saying the President Trump has no right to assert executive privilege. They can impeach him for asserting a privilege recognized in federal courts for decades. But I want to turn to this last segment talking about Attorney General Barr. When he was first appointed, February 2019, there were some people on the conservative side who said, you know, good guy, he can definitely make it through the confirmation process. This is when we had to get rid of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who proved to be pretty much useless and didn't fight for anything. But on to Barr, we were appointed in February 2019. There were people at the time who said he's just not tough enough, that he does not recognize the hornet's nest into which he is stepping. He does not realize the radical determination of the leftists in this country to take down President Trump. Does he have the backbone? Does he have the tenacity? And there were other people who know him who said, yeah, actually, he's a pretty strong guy. He's a pretty strong guy. And several of his recent speeches, we have quoted them, we played clips from them in the show, several recent speeches can make you think that Attorney General Barr 
can handle his job, that he does recognize there was no predicate, there was no basis, that there was no reason under the sun that the FBI launched a Trump-Russia collusion investigation except for they want a way to try to get to eliminate President Trump, to take him out. So the effort of Attorney General Barr, at least to publicly say he's looking into this, is great. It's great that he's looking into it. It's great that he appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham to investigate, to get to the bottom. What was the reason that this whole investigation of Trump got started inside the FBI? This is a good thing. But here we are. We're in December of 2019. We have the U.S. House voting to impeach the president. And you have the Attorney General Barr and Durham investigation into the predicate, the beginnings of the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, saying, as he just said last week, Attorney General Barr said in a series of interviews, that is a massive investigation going on. He still believes was very flimsy evidence that gave rise to the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax, you know, the beginning of the investigation. But they, Barr and Durham, won't have the results of that investigation ready to be released to the public until mid-2020. I guess he said earlier or mid-2020. So he's going to let the entire impeachment process go forward, House doing it today, moving to the Senate in the new year, and letting it go without deciding he has got, he has got to begin to let the American public know how deep and wide and evil the corruption inside the FBI was and is. He's saying, I could, no, these are two separate things. Trump is being impeached about the Ukraine and his Linsky conversation. My job over here is finding about, about Trump-Russia collusion, entirely different story. But they're all interlaced, my friends. They're all interlaced. When you stop and think about how the Trump-Russia collusion thing got started, it was Hillary Clinton, through Perkins Coie, through Fusion GPS, paying to concoct the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax out of the Steele dossier, which had completely unproven or totally disproven allegations. Nothing to it. The entire effort inside the FBI to take down Trump on Trump-Russia collusion was started by Hillary. The entire conversation that is the uh, allegedly the you know, gist of why the Democrats think they can impeach President Trump over the Trump-Ukrainian conversation in July bears on what was happening in 2016 with the corruption the now widely known corruption that we have Rudy Giuliani you know, can't wait to tell America about, and we have already many pieces of evidence about collusion involving Ukrainian government, officials in the government, Burisma, the, the uh, Ukrainian energy company, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's, you know, then Vice President Joe Biden's son on the board with no knowledge of energy industry, no, nothing to bring to the table except his last name, C clearly uh, allegations of money laundering in massive amounts, the State Department, our State Department under Obama paying 
money to support the efforts of the George Soros-funded NGOs inside the Ukraine to destabilize the country. It's the cabal of the Obama-Biden-Hillary era was right in the middle of everything that happened in 2016 involving the Ukraine, involving the Russians, and involving America. And the idea that we're going to let the Democrats in the House, you know, myopically look at one little piece of it and say, you know what, we're going to look at this and we're going to impeach a president over this nothing of a conversation Totally telling America, by the way, don't listen to that man behind the curtain. Don't listen to people talking about Biden and how he already admitted he did exactly what we're accusing Trump of. The Democrats are going to impeach the president and one of the key figures in this entire country with the capacity to move in to the, you know, to the, Amer- to the political scene to put out for the American people to understand this is how corrupt Obama, Biden, and Hillary were in the Ukraine, in Russia. The whole big picture painted for America and then see how the American people feel about the Democrats' effort to pick away at one conversation in which President Trump was saying to the Ukrainians, I think you ought to look into what happened with Biden and Burisma. Folks, I question, I'm becoming concerned about Attorney General Barr's unwillingness to put out what he has so far. Not suspicions, not unproven, but he has a lot already. And to not put that on the table as America's festering under this impeachment attack seems like it is more determined to protect the institutions of the FBI and Department of Justice than it is to bring justice to America. The ultimate job the Attorney General has is not to protect the FBI and the DOJ. It is to protect the concept of justice in America. Before I turn to why it matters to you, I want to tell you two last things. Three last things, very, very important. Number one, I'm taking a little break over Christmas. We are, you know, we have three grown kids and they're all coming home. We got family things, so I'm taking a little break over Christmas. I will for sure be on air December 30th, back the Monday after Christmas, December 30th. I'll be there uh, ready to roll and I'll be there all the time, Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time until Election Day and beyond in 2020. Number two, I do fabulous once-a-week emails that summarize all the uh, show topics in the show, gives links to the show, tells people if you want to check, get the email on Friday and see what you talk about and click on just the stories you want to hear. It's a great way to do that. Plus, if you'll share that email with your friends, it would help grow this show. You can subscribe to the email by going to my website, americachemitalk.org. Hit on subscribe. You'll get an email on Friday every week with all the great stories. Great way to share the show. And number three is this. I have never been paid one penny for doing this show in five years. I have been supported by donors. I need to be able to grow this show. I need to be, I need your help. I'm asking for your help to come. If you support and like the ideas I t- share with you, if you like the truth I share about America, if you like the point, the things you learn on this show, I invite you, I implore you to consider supporting this show. I can move forward with marketing for this show, help in ways that get around the social media people who are, you know, repressing conservative voices. And I think you know what I'm talking about. 
I can get around those with your help. I need your help. I'm asking to you, if you can, to make a one-time or recurring donation to this show. This is entirely a donation-sponsored show. If you'd like to donate, please do at my website, americacanwetalk.org. Hit the donate button. I would so appreciate your generosity. And I mostly appreciate your listening every day as I talk to the show to speak up about the extraordinary, unique greatness that is America. And now let's turn to talking why the stories we talked about today matter to you. First story was on impeachment and the leftist takeover of America. There was no crime, no wrongdoing, no due process for the president. Article one of the impeachment, Democrat Joe Biden is on video admitting to what House Democrats falsely accused Trump of doing. Trump to be impeached for looking into Biden's indisputable corruption. Article two of the impeachment, the House Democrats denial of executive privilege is the denial of decades of established precedent for presidents of both parties. It's a denial of the three equal branches of government. This is house sanctioned lawlessness. This is in fact war on America and the constitution. Do not look away. What leftist Democrats have done is inexcusable and unforgivable. On socialism in Venezuela and why it matters to you, recognizable parallels and patterns, Venezuela and America. Socialists always, we gotta flip to the next there, why we matter to you. Um, Okay, socialists always want more power in government. They voice nice sounding ends to justify and disguise ruthless means. They must take money from some to give to others to achieve those ends. They always run out of money. They end up as tyrannical, dictatorial regimes that destroy the spirit of the people as they garner the people's wealth unto themselves. Americans of every age should know better, must know better. We must reject socialism. And Rosemary Collier, who is shocked, I tell you, House Intel Committee Chairman Devin Nunes informed presiding FISA court judge Collier in February of 2018 of every FISA abuse concern he had, all of which has since been confirmed by the DOJ's report. And Judge Rosemary Collier did nothing for more than 20 months. Collier's blistering rebuke of the FBI is nothing more than an order to show us how you're gonna do better. Wholly inadequate in imposing accountability. Her shock is too little and too late. Her inaction since February 2018 is inexcusable. She ignored Nunes either because he was not of her ruling class tribe or she was not capable of believing the FBI would die, would lie, or she didn't care. Rosemary Collier is not the solution. She is part of the problem. She should be removed from the FISA court. Is Attorney General Barr up to the job? I do not know. The AG is standing by while the president is impeached by the political party that weaponized the entire federal government to criminally interfere with the U.S. presidential campaign and then attempt a coup against a duly elected president. What is he waiting for? Barr's praise of Rod Rosenstein, a signatory to false FISA warrant apps and was plainly in the middle of the coup plotting and planning is inexplicable. Barr's praise of FBI Director Christopher Wray, who has offered smug, condescending responses to manifest FBI corruption and bias is inexplicable. Barr's apparent approval of continuing DOJ malfeasance in the Flynn case is also inexplicable. Barr has one chance to save the institution he so reveres, and that is to clean house emphatically and start over. And on the last slide, I'll just say on this alternative media, folks, America has been blessed by the presence of shows like this, websites, social media sources that bring the truth to the American people so we can see what the leftist cabal is doing. Because if you listen to mainstream media, 
you would not have any idea what was happening in Washington. It's a little long to read, so I'll leave it for you to read uh, next time. And I'm going to close out by saying thank you so much for listening to America Can We Talk. Email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. Subscribe, follow, you know, retweet. Share, do everything you can, please, to help grow this show and grow the message of this show, which is that America is worth saving and protecting. I speak up for America because America matters. I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you